Before we get into the episode, we want to let you know we are gathering another Attaching to God learning cohort. In it, you will escape your anxious jungles and avoiding deserts of faith and grow into secure attachment with God and with others. This is a one-of-a-kind six-week cohort combining recorded teachings and live cohort calls. So you can get all the details at embodiedfaith.life slash learning dash cohorts or see the show notes for details after the description. What we look at, what we attend to becomes our reality. It causes us to see some things and to be blind to other things. Could this be true for our whole modern way of life? Well, that's what we're talking about today. This is the Being With podcast where we're exploring the intersection of relational neuroscience, spiritual formation, and faith. And we're brought to you by Grassroots Christianity. Today, I'm so excited to have Richard Beck on with us. He is author, a blogger, professional psychologist at Abilene Christian University, and he most recently wrote a book called Hunting Magic Eels, Rediscovering an Enchanted Faith in a Skeptical Age. And he writes daily about the intersection of faith and psychology, a lot like this podcast, on his blog called Experimental Theology, which you can find a link on the show notes. Richard, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's exciting. Glad to be with you. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, I like to start off, first of all, by asking people, how did they get into this connection between faith and psychology or faith and uh, neuroscience and these types of things? So how did you kind of start on on this road? Yeah, my early years as a as an academic psychologist, I was doing most of my research in the area of uh, clinical psychology. Mood disorders was the main thing I was focusing on. Um, but I had an undergraduate degree in ministry. And about 15 years ago, started kind of leaking my research into the area of psychology and, and religious belief and practice and started publishing in those areas in, in scholarly journals. And then that eventually turned into books uh, that kind of try to summarize some of the implications of that research for the church. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so it's a mainly a research interest, but a lot of my research is uh, autobiographical. I tended to research spiritual questions in my own life that I kind of wanted answers to. So kind of use my research as a bit of a spiritual therapy, uh, one can say. Okay. You're like kind of on a on an inverse path of what I am. I <laughs> trained in the ministry, then I got a doctorate in theology, uh, but then I've been working my way into kind of the neuroscience and mm-hmm. psychology as kind of my own therapy. I need to kind of learn about my own, uh, you know, lack of emotional side and connection and these types of things. So I was kind of doing my own therapeutic work and you're probably doing your own theological kind of therapy and things like that too. Oh yeah. That's right. Well, so usually on this show, we kind of go straight at like a, a relational neuroscience kind of idea or concept, you know, and bring someone on and they kind of like, you know, unfold it a little bit. And then we end by talking about kind of implications for everyday life. But this, like today is going to be kind of a little bit on the opposite end, but we're going to be kind of looking at kind of like larger issues or streams kind of in our modern life that you've been writing about uh, mainly uh, for a while, but most recently in Hunting Magic Eels. Uh, And then kind of want to kind of hit back to the everyday life uh, and kind of how some of this cognitive stuff fits together. But you wrote a book called Hunting Magic Eels, Rediscovering... The enchanted, uh, re, re, recovering, excuse me, an enchanted faith in a skeptical age 
And a lot of people have been writing books that I found uh, about doubt, like Greg Boyd's uh, Benefit of the Doubt. My friend AJ Swoboda just wrote a book called Mm -hmm. After Doubt, How to Question Faith Without Losing It. But your book kind of takes a different path. It's kind of adjacent. It's it's kind of near it. And I, I really loved it. But what is this thing about hunting magic eels? And I'm sure it has nothing to do with the shrieking eels of the Princess Bride. But why magic eels? Uh, yeah, the, uh, the publisher grabbed that title, I think, to evoke just these kinds of questions. Uh, what What is that about? So I opened the book with the line, we were hunting magic eels, and I was recounting a visit to Wales with my wife, and we were visiting Sanwyn Island, where a, a Celtic saint, Dwynwyn, had this well that had these magical eels in it, that if uh, lovers threw a token of their love into the well, and one of the eels disturbed that token, that was a sign that the lover would be faithful for life. And so she has gone on, St. Dwynwen has gone on to become the the St. Valentine's for the Welsh people. And so I just use that quaint story of a magical, enchanted past and how we don't really live in that world anymore. We don't seek premarital counseling by consulting magic eels anymore. (laughs) Uh, So so I'm just using that as a whimsical story to open the book about how the, the world has changed. And we are living in a skeptical, secular age now. And faith is harder for a lot of us. Yeah. And, and you kind of use that throughout that and other stories about uh, to kind of help us focus on the things we attend to or what we pay attention to. And you talk about attention blindness kind of early on in the book. Uh, and you bring up this kind of famous uh, psychology experiment about the, an invisible gorilla to kind of talk about the things we do or don't see. So could you kind of walk us through that, uh, that experiment and then kind of what that work is doing for you in this book? Yeah. So I think, like you said, there's a lot of people out there writing now about this crisis of doubt and not just in the wider world. I mean, that's an easy thing to talk about. The rise of the nuns, increasing rates of agnosticism and atheism, the church just losing their young people. Um, but, but there's a lot of writers about in, in our pews, in our faith communities, uh, disenchantment is, is, um, kind of a chronic illness where, where even the faithful, find the plausibility of faith more difficult. And so, yeah, people are writing a lot about that subject right now. There's also kind of in the post or ex-evangelical community, um, that journey into deconstruction where we're dismantling all of our beliefs. And I think a lot of us now after, I'd say, but good 10 years of writing about deconstruction, people are finding that they're getting kind of stuck there um, in large, large portions of the progressive kind of Christian audience is kind of stuck in, in, in deconstruction and they don't know what to do after that. And so faith just becomes about doubt. And that's a, it's hard to sustain a posture of doubt for decades in, in the lifespan of, of faith. So people are trying to make that turn toward reconstruction. And when they do it, they typically are staying in the realm of cognition mm-hmm. that, that they're focusing on belief. And, and so just believe these propositions but but as we know, those beliefs are harder to s- sustain in a skeptical, secular uh, context. And so my book is trying to change out of the register of belief to experience and, and building on that experiment by Daniel Simons on attention blindness. It's, it's that famous meme where you're asked to watch two basketball teams passing a ball back and forth, count, and you're supposed to count the passes, and you do that. Um, and you're asked how many passes were made, and then... The video asks, but did you see the dancing gorilla? I think there's one online that has a moonwalking bear. Mm-hmm. 
And I think about 50% of participants in the studies don't see the dancing gorilla or the moonwalking bear. The video rewinds and you see, yes, in the middle of all of the passing, there was this very obvious thing. And so Daniel Simons coined the term observational blindness. I use the term attentional blindness in the book, but he calls it observational blindness. And it's the way uh, our attention and observation focuses us and brings certain things into view, but in doing so blinds us to very obvious things. And so obviously a dancing gorilla is the most obvious stimulus in front of you from like an optical perspective. And yet from a cognitive perspective, we don't see it. So the argument I make in the book building around that is that there is this obvious thing in our lives, God. So that's the heretical part of the book. God is the moonwalking bear or the dancing gorilla. So the sacred, the transcendent is there in front of us. That hasn't gone anywhere. But the modern world has directed our attention in various ways that cause us to miss that sacred thing that sits right in front of us. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And, and that that attention blindness is uh, it's cultural. It's built. It's, it's kind of built up from the earliest ages. We're we're raised into this. So people talk about shared attention and how infants and children learn how to pay attention to the important things of the world. Uh, is that a stick or a snake? You know, who's mm-hmm. a good person, bad person? And they do that because they're seeing what their parents are looking at, and then they look at it and they find out that's important. If their parents always ignore a certain object in the room, then they too learn to ignore that object in the room. But culturally, and even as like a civilization in the West, we've kind of uh, shared the attention on science and kind of the hard facts of the things we can observe. And we've lost paying attention to um, kind of the transcendent or the, the enchantment of the world. You talk about a little bit how we've come about this disenchanted world. Like what are some of the markers of the disenchantment that we're kind of living into? Yeah. Let me, let me underline kind of what you just said to add that kind of sure. another layer of kind of cognitive psychology. Like I think one of the biggest revolutions in cognitive psychology over the last uh, generation has been the understanding that we don't engage in what's called bottom-up processing, but top-down processing. And by that, I mean, we don't, the way I describe it to my students is we, we like to think that our perceptions of the world are manufactured from the incoming sensory data that we have. And so a perception is built up like putting a puzzle together. We take bits of uh, visual stimulus and, 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 and uh, auditory stimulus, and we put all those puzzle pieces together. And the brain then uh, in real time synthesizes all of that into the picture that we see in the finished puzzle. Mm-hmm. But what we've learned is that the brain does not have enough time to do that. And it is too much of a computing process uh, to to do that in real time. So instead, what we've discovered is the brain is always engaged in top-down processing. That is to say, the brain is always guessing and anticipating from the top down. It kind of already knows what it's going to see. And then it fills in the gaps. And it's only in from visual optical illusions to the observational blindness study that we just talked about. When you do fine grained experiments that you can see the brain guessing, right? Mm. Attending, but also being blind or creating a distortion of perception. So the point here is the brain is already engaged in a theoretical exercise about what it thinks it will see or, or what it expects to see. And so, again, I think in the modern world, a lot of top-down expectations 
have been built into us that we do not expect to see the sacred anymore. What well, we see something very different. And because of that, we don't see it at all. Um, and, and so as far as forces that have led to that, you know, the two I talk about in the book, and I'm borrowing some here from uh, Charles uh, Taylor's book, A Secular Age, two quick ones are the rise of a mechanistic view of the cosmos. A lot of people think science is driving skepticism and secularism and, and um, sociologists argue it's not science per se. Uh, factual discoveries are not necessarily disenchanting. In fact, factual discoveries like neuroscience or astronomy can be very enchanting. They can take us to the cusp of the mystery. What is disenchanting isn't facts, but a, a perceptual, uh, again, top-down perceptual frame that the world is a machine mm-hmm. and that the even the brain and myself is a machine. It's, it's a chemical machine, but it's still a machine run by lawful lawful deterministic forces. And that expectation, right, top-down assumption that, I'm looking at a machine obviously distances God from a description of what I'm seeing in front of me. And I am down there in the mechanics. The other thing I would say that had a big disenchanting force is, is the uh, Protestant reformation. In many ways, the Protestant reformation in the book I described shifted us from a more of a mystical experience with God um, to a more of a moralistic view of God And that has had a disenchanting effect because when morality, like moral performance or political activism became the focal point of the faith, right? Those, that's what Christians do, moral performance, political activism. That has a disenchanting effect on faith because uh, the next question that is asked is, well, do you need God um, to, to be a political activist or a social justice warrior? Do you need God to be a good person? And the answer obviously is you don't. And so God then for God also kind of drops off the radar screen because moral performance or political performance becomes the goal of faith. So I'd say those two trajectories, a mechanistic imagination for seeing the world and the and the priority of moral and political performance were had the two greatest um, effects on disenchanting the modern experience of the world. Yeah, that is so great. Thank you for that summary. The um the kind of the movement from you kind of say mystery to mechanisms or moralizing. And I find that to be true on kind of the, both the, the right and the left, the mm-hmm. fundamentalist or progressive side is that, uh, you know, I have fundamentalist friends who, you know, are like, you know, disenchanted might we say with fundamentalism, but they want to be good people. Like they're not just going out, you know, doing crazy bad stuff where, and they want their kids to be good people. Right. But after a while they're like, well, I can just be a good person without, God. So I'll Mm -hmm. just kind of do that. And then, like you just said, like I could be a political activist. Um, but at the end of the day, like I could probably do that without God. And so we could be, we could have personal purity as fun as kind of post fundamentalists. We could have social progress as progressives and we don't have to have God involved. Um, and I, and, and we've shifted kind of from that, that mystery. So how, uh, you mentioned that when this happens and we kind of live in these mechanistic and moralizing worlds that uh, it kind of creates this ache in us, which mm-hmm. are kind of these echoes of past fulfillments that we no longer have, which I, I uh, and I don't want to spend too much time on those, but like, what are some of those aches that you've seen in yourself or in the students that you teach that you think are kind of now bubbling up to the surface because of this disenchantment? Yeah. So the moral frame is, um, 
of the moral framing of faith, I think is, has changed the conversation a little bit. I think, I think in the past, that's what we would lead with. We would lead, you know, when I was growing up in a fundamentalist uh, church, the leading edge of evangelism was um, uh, Romans. You know, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. So we kind of begin with that moral predicament, but, but a lot of like, like we've been discussing kind of disenchanted young people, skeptical adults um, feel like they're, pretty good, morally speaking. They're on the right side of history in many ways. My, my, my college students are that way, right? They are on the right side of history on, on race uh, and sexuality and gender. And so they, they see themselves as pushing past um, a conservative a church that is kind of holding them back. So I find the moral approach to talking about faith uh, harder um, because of what I just said. But but one of the things that we notice in this disenchanted age is what I call the ache. And the ache is just this sense that, well, you see in the statistics of mental health that there's increasing rates of uh, depression, increasing rates of anxiety, increasing rates of loneliness, uh, addiction are at all time highs, uh, suicide. So there's this sense that we are ailing as a society. So we are very good, morally, politically speaking, and yet my my students are also very much unwell. And so I try to connect um, that ache to that loss of the transcendent ground, that, that God just wasn't there to help us be good. In many ways, we've inherited those lessons very well and maybe even done better. But by leaving behind a transcendent ground of meaning and value and purpose in life, life has been rendered more fragile. And this isn't just me as a person of faith saying this, this is something you see popping up even in secular liberal venues where people are saying our young people and our culture at large is having a crisis of meaning and purpose. And I think the pandemic has revealed that mm. when, when all the entertainments were stripped away and we were just thrust back on ourselves, a lot of people discovered a void that they that they wanted to fill. And so you're also seeing this thirst for a kind of a sacred weight to life that is, um, I think, a, I think a good place to begin a conversation about uh, God. Mm. So then how do you start having that conversation? How, what are your like entry points that you found to be helpful? Well, I mean, I'm a psychologist, so I'm going to start with um, probably self-esteem. And, and one of the things I, I point out is that without without a, a transcendent ground of value, uh, what psychologists call mattering. So mattering is just this conviction, this durable existential conviction that you matter no matter your external circumstances. Mm-hmm. And And so obviously that is unsurprising that a conviction that you matter would convey a degree of psychological resiliency, uh, some shame resiliency as well, that no matter what, like if I go through a spate of unemployment, if I am, if I go through a romantic heartbreak that I am able to make that move to yes, the metrics of success and fulfillment of my life have gone South. And yet I can tether my value to a transcendent ground that I matter uh, in the eyes of God um, that gives us kind of a, a, a degree of, again, resiliency that, that without that transcendent ground, if, if my self-esteem is fundamentally the portfolio I have currently, 
then that creates a very volatile mental health journey where I'm doing well when I'm doing well, but I'm not doing well when the metrics of life um, go south. And so that's one place where I would begin that conversation. And again, this is an empirical fact, uh, meta-analysis after meta-analysis, right? Reviews of many studies that have been done have shown that religion is a reliable uh, predictor of happiness. And, and I think it's a reliable predictor of happiness because of this ground of self-dignity. Um, and this is also why I think we have consistently seen faith become a resource uh, for marginalized communities because in a marginalized community, it's very right. The problem of a marginalized person isn't that they need antidepressants, you know, you don't want to medicate the margins to say, but, but they do need a way of kind of saying, you know, according to the American meritocracy, I, I don't matter much. So they're going to be turned to a ground of dignity um, that that is going to transcend the meritocracy, and they typically will find that in faith as as well. So you see that in Chris Ar- uh, Arnade's book, Dignity. I don't know if anybody knows that book, but he was a, he was a physicist and a uh, an agnostic, and he went around the country as a photojournalist, interviewing marginalized communities, rural and urban uh, people of color, but also white people. And he consistently found that the source of dignity in marginalized communities is this mattering, this transcendent ground of dignity rooted in a, uh, a relationship with God. So that's kind of one place where I would start is how are you cobbling together um, an identity uh, and where do you turn when it all crashes and burns? Um, like like where, you get your, where do you get your shame resiliency from? when you are in the midst of shame. Um, so that's one place uh, to talk about it, uh, but there are others as well. Yeah, no, thank you. That's great. And I think that that ground of mattering of the human dignity, you know, the, a lot of people, you know, the nuns and the duns, people leaving the church because they're, they're not finding that message. But I find at the heart of the Bible is this idea of being made in God's image and how, uh, you know, and I read that in the book is like, oh, yeah, like I think that like being made in the image of God is how mattering kind of was unfolding, you know, for ancient Israel and then being, you know, conformed to the image of Christ and how we both have access to God's presence as a way of mattering, relational <laughs> kind of belonging. But we also have purpose within God's kingdom that we are given valuable work. And those I at least I would think would be kind of two coin two sides to the coin of mattering is that I, I as a person have intrinsic worth, but I also contribute and I can add to the world in a way that I can say is mine, but that is also for someone else. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I think going back to what I was saying about kind of, we want our lives to have a kind of a sacred weight. Um, we want to live um, a, a, a heroic life. We want an arena of moral performance where I feel like I'm, yes, making a contribution, making a difference. And I think this is one of the reasons why politics has become like the new religion, because in a post-Christian disenchanted age, we are looking for an arena of heroic moral action. And politics is, is increasingly where we're finding that narrative. And so my young people, yes, they're not maybe as religious as they used to be, but they are definitely still seeking that, that deep sense of like, I want my day to make a difference. I want my life 
to contribute. And politics has become that arena. The trouble with that is, going back to the ache, is that they're, yes, they're politically active, but they're also struggling from a mental health perspective. Mm -hmm. And if anybody who's paid any attention to the mental health of activist communities knows that there's a lot of burnout, a lot of anger, a lot of dysfunction, that, that, that activistic lifestyle hasn't proven sustainable through a lifespan. And, and, and you'll see older activists say, I need something more than just the revolution. I need a location of, yes, mattering, self-healing, a, a transcendent ground of being that allows other fruits to come in, not just the angry burn of justice, but also grace mm. and mercy and forgiveness. And so you kind of see the limitations of the activist discourse where they, they, they can't figure out how to do things like grace mm. um, very well for themselves um, or for other people because the revolution is ultimate. And so it pushes them into a space that becomes psychologically very difficult to maintain for long periods of time, just from a mental health perspective. Now that doesn't mean we need to reduce the burn for justice. I'm just saying that the transcendent uh, experience of grace needs to come alongside it to support it in a healthy way. Right. Well, and I, I love the way you were kind of describing that activist life. Uh, and I think, and that kind of ache that accompanies it. And I think that happens on, you know, all sides of the political spectrum, you know, for, for all the people who are listening uh, for whatever side you come on, I, I find that to be true. So you name a couple things at the end of the book as kind of like, you know, you know, the, the older jargon would be sacred pathways. Mm -hmm. uh, but you, you kind of talk about re-enchanting the, the world and you have these kind of four different um, kind of places. You talk about the sacramental, the contemplative, the charismatic and the Celtic. I don't know why you couldn't get all four C's there. I mean, you have one <laughs> and this, but obviously, you don't, you don't know how often I get that comment. Like, like, like there, I think there's like this all inner, from Baptist, right? There's this inner preacher in us that wanted all to have the same letters. I know, I know. it's, it's Terrible. So, uh, so I don't just pick one of those, you know, which, uh, just kind of, you know, pick one that stands out or might fit with the conversation we've been having, uh, the sacramental contemplative charismatic or the Celtic, like these are different paths for re-enchanting. Yeah. Like why do you name those and what do they kind of look like? Well, rather than go, go deep into one, let me just kind of pick off the top of them. And so, sure. so the idea is, is that if we're going to open ourselves to these different attentional moments um, we're not just doing that on our own. There are all these resources that we have through the faith traditions that can help us with attention. So from the liturgical, I'm, I'm grabbing onto those kind of structured practices of prayer or, or daily liturgies um, or, or material reminders from icons to prayer beads to candles to incense. So grabbing onto some material things and some structured practices to help regulate my attention from the contemplative the the prayer practices like one i think is really important is the ignatian practice of examine at the end of the day just go through the day and say where did i feel drawn by joy gratitude where did grace come to me and again that's a habit of attention because if we don't do that practice we just wake up go to bed and, and we lose track of the dancing gorilla so just take a moment to dwell and bring that sacred ground back into view every day in a disciplined way. Um, from the charismatic, uh, pay attention to the emotional life. 
uh, the charismatic it's and I know there's a lot of people that might get triggered by the charismatic but I think the 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 charism of the charismatic tradition is that focus on affectivity the way my joy becomes a compass in the world um and then lastly with the celtic I think a lot of us experience god in nature um the god comes to us in the, in the wind and the rain and the trees and leaning into the way God comes to me in the natural world is another way of getting my attention. I think a lot of us discovered that during COVID, where getting outside became the way we reconnected with the divine um, during those uh, long, empty days of social quarantine. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, can I dive into one of them? Because I'm a part of the charismatic tradition. Mm-hmm. And what you were kind of talking about in the, in that chapter, I just thought was like, just really important. It's just to kind of set it up, it was, you know... Um, well, I'll just let you kind of jump. Okay. You, you kind of started, uh, you're not charismatic tradition. You weren't raised that way, but Mm -hmm. you found yourself stumbling into, uh, first free something. Freedom. uh, Freedom. Yeah. And, uh, what did you experience, you know, for those, cause I feel like what, what you experience is good for people in my charismatic tradition, but also for those who would be kind of opposed to it or that have been really burned by it. So if you could kind of unpack, a little bit of, of that experience. I'd appreciate it. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I, I grew up in a very, so we were a cessationist movement, right? The Holy spirit, you know, had uh, finished up her work thousands of years ago. And, and so um, it was all very intellectualized and very undemonstrative worship. And so I went to start uh, worshiping and serving at a little mission church plant called Freedom Fellowship. And the again, the experience on the margins of Christianity, this is not just locally um, in my town, but this is a global phenomenon. But the, the Christianity on the margins of society tends towards the charismatic. And so I found myself sitting in the pews of this uh, charismatic church and found myself to be a complete fish out of water. The story I tell is like early on my time at Freedom in the middle of the praise, this like I call it a Holy Ghost conga line broke out. Like people just kind of started (laughs) kind of dancing around the auditorium. And I was like, okay, that is very outside my comfort zone. So I just sat in my pew and I gave people supportive high fives as they passed me. And and so so initially I found myself really uncomfortable, but but as I spent more time in that space, one of the reasons I was there was because I was going through my own season of deconstruction. And uh, I realized sitting in the pews of a charismatic church that I had turned God into kind of an intellectual puzzle Mm -hmm. and I had been locked in inside kind of a verbal loop of just thinking and reading and asking hard questions that somehow I would reach God by kind of solving the Rubik's cube of the atonement, you know, or solving the Rubik's cube of the problem of evil. And, and, and I, and then when I got that solved and snapped the cube into the final place, then my Christianity would be easy. And, and eventually I realized that that Rubik's cube is going to be going on for my whole life. Um, and that's why I do think people get stuck in the deconstruction. They, they don't have any other move to play because the, the journey of deconstruction is primarily an intellectualized journey. Right, right. And, but then they get stuck there. And, and it was freedom that helped me realize that my heart knew things. This is Pascal's, uh, uh, the Catholic uh, scientist and mystic who said, right, the heart has its reasons that reason knows nothing about. And the charismatics taught me that, that there were things my heart knew, that the most truthful things in my life were my feelings, um, not not 
empirical descriptions of the world. And I think that's one of the sad things about this kind of scientific gaze, I call it, where we look at the world in, in that mechanistic way that somehow we become convinced that feelings are not true, not to be trusted, Mm -hmm. but any human look at the world reveals that what makes us human are our loves and our sorrows and, and the emotional side. Those are the, those are the truest experiential things in our life. And, And somehow it is almost perverse that science has trained us to distrust the very thing that makes us human. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As, as you were kind of talking about it now, and as I was reading through it, I was just thinking through how charismatic worship and experience is very embodied mm-hmm. and it is expressive in your body, but also in, in your emotions. You know, I got the mm-hmm. three, three E's in there. So there you go. <laughs> embodied, expressive, and emotional. Uh, and that, you know, some could talk about how that's more right-brained, right-hemisphere, uh, rather than the kind of critical, cynical, skeptic, uh, left-hemisphere and things like that. But you also mentioned how charismatics, like, attend to the miraculous. And I know a lot mm-hmm. of us, you know, and I'm, I, I could be critical, you know, I'm, I, I was, I didn't start the kind of more charismatic movement. I've kind of worked my way here, you know, and I, you know, we have doctorates and all these things, right? Mm-hmm. So you get cynical. You kind of like, was that really a miracle? Like, I know the doctor came back with positive, but maybe it was like a false, you know, positive before. But, uh, or is the parking spot really held there by angels and things like that? Mm-hmm. But, but you make an interesting observation. I, I want you ex- to kind of explain what you realized about this this talk about miracles and it really helped me appreciate that mentality a little bit too. Yeah. So, so obviously when you go into charismatic spaces, you're going to be in a very uh, enchanted world and uh, miracle stories are just a part of what you're, what you're going to hear and what your testimonies and, and, and again, so I'm sitting in that church in that disenchanted deconstructing space and, and I'm turning every miracle story and this is from, you know, getting a parking spot, you know, in the nick of time, you know, to money showing up in the mail to to healings like like on and on they go. And again, I'm, I'm treating all of those miracle stories as a Rubik's Cube. Um, are, are there other logical possibilities? Could this not have been a coincidence? And the thing that helped me most in, in sitting under miracle stories in the miraculous as a disenchanted skeptic and just letting them wash over me um, is what I saw was what I describe in the book is a, a hermeneutics of gratitude that, that what I saw in, in the telling of the miracle story was that grace was coming to my friends at freedom. Um, whether or not it was a coincidence or not, they were saying, thank you. Right. That they, so the, it's their prayer of examine. Right. So so the contemplatives don't like the charismatic stories, but it's their prayer of examine. When they look back at their day, they saw divine moments of grace. They they yes, they got that parking spot and, and that they needed it at that time and they needed to pay the bill and the money showed up. And so whether or not we could get into kind of a mechanistic, terministic explanation of why that thing happened, what I appreciated about charismatics is just that posture of receptivity mm-hmm. and, and receiving life as a gift. And gift is the same word in scripture for grace. And so they just narrate. So this is the hermeneutic part, right? They narrate their lives as an experience of grace, right? where a disenchanted person like me sees, narrates my life as one of random 
chance or luck. And, and that just everything's just a random. It right. doesn't become a ground of transcendence. Uh, but rather, if you narrate your life as one of gratitude, psychologists, again, know this for the fact, as a fact that people who um, practice gratitude are the happiest people in the world. And that charismatic miracle story to me is one of the resources of the charismatic tradition where they're just saying, life is full of grace. Open your eyes, pay attention. And when you see it, say, praise God. Mm, Amen. And tell someone else. And actually, science tells us that when you share gratitude to someone else, it becomes even more real. And so Uh there's all these kind of interpersonal, intersubjective processes of gratitude that are happening. Well, just to kind of land the plane, your whole book is kind of geared toward... (laughs) This idea that we need um, not not less thinking, but we certainly need more encounter. I, I know in my life when I hear that someone is going through a deconstructive phase, like I'll want to give them helpful answers, but I also immediately start praying that they would encounter God, that they would have some mm-hmm. sort of, uh, you know, walk in nature where God breaks through the Celtic kind of you know, enchantment, you know, mm-hmm. full on charismatic, you know open vision, I, you know, I'm all for it, or some sort of contemplative mm-hmm. or liturgical encounter. So I start praying for that encounter as well as trying to give it. But why, what is the pushback that you get, or not pushback, but why do you kind of emphasize the encounter uh, just as, as we kind of end this? Yeah, to go back to what we said at the very beginning, my, my experience with people who are, who are disenchanted or going through deconstruction is that the, is the gap between belief, unbelief where they are and belief just feels like an un- bridgeable uh chasm mm. and 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 so as they stand on the far cliff and look across the demand from the faithful to say just believe this they just feel like i can't how do i so faith isn't produced by an act of will i just can't force myself because i'll feel like i'm pretending mm-hmm. so the encounterism the experiential piece which is why this observational blindness is important, fills your life with moments that you can begin naming those as God. You're not believing in these things. You're just recognizing these truths. And that then builds, I think, uh, plausibility structures. And so now the word God isn't this just empty cipher that I just have to swallow. I just got to believe it. Instead, God is coming to me through all these experiences, through the moments of grace, through nature, through an encounter. And some of them are, yeah, supernatural. Then when my life is filled with those, then I get closer to the intellectual ascent of saying, yes, that God is here. God is real. You know, um, I, I, the dancing gorilla is coming into view um, because I'm starting to pay attention in a more disciplined way. Mm. So for you, basically, God is a dancing gorilla. That's basically yes, what, that's that's what I got out point. of this. <laughs> but, but by that, you mean it matters how we see it. So how we see in the world, uh, whether it's a, mecha- a mechanistic, disenchanted world, or uh, more mystery, more mystical kind of enchanted world, it's, it matters for us in our walk of faith. Well, thank you so much. Dr. Beck, and thank you uh, for all the other uh, books that you've written. Uh, but please check out the Hunting Magic Eels, Recovering an Enchanted Faith in a Skeptical Age. Uh, and we should do this again sometime. Anytime. You, you call, I'll be here. <laughs> I might take you up on that. <laughs> well, again, this is brought to you by Grassroots Christianity. You can find uh, this on Facebook and YouTube, but you can find the podcast on Spotify, <laughs> iTunes, and all the other places that you get them. So please 
like, review, share, and um, get the word out however you can. Thanks so much for listening, everyone.